And most of my videos are at least an hour or more long. And I learned that it's a good idea maybe uh, so you don't lose people right away to do time markers in a video. So check out that description box underneath the video here on YouTube and look to see what the time markers are. You may not want to sit through certain parts of the video so you can go immediately to a time marker that is telling you what's there at that point in the video. And that may speed up the process for you if you don't want to sit for an hour through everything. If you want to just get to the point, get those time markers and go right to the parts of the video you want to actually see and see them quickly. Uh, and I found that's worked very effectively uh, for a lot of my viewers over this last couple of years we've been doing this. And I wish I would have known that years ago. All right, now let's just take a, a clear example of what I'm talking about with these time markers. Okay, a video we did called The Christian Worldview According to the Bible Alone, which is utterly rejected by most of the world. Here we see the time markers which are located not only in the description text, right underneath the, the video, but then also down in the comment section. I always put the time marker information down in the comment section as well. Usually I pin that comment at the top so people can see where they can click to certain parts of the video and go directly to those topics immediately. Okay, now let's take a look at this one now, just as an example. Here we see at the 1314 mark, if you want to just jump there to see what that talks about, it says Rob begins his presentation by sharing comments from Abraham Kuyper. You have a link there about the distinction between those who have been regenerated and those who are not. You click on that marker with your, your mouse, then you'll go right to this segment of that video. He begins by saying human beings would find differences between themselves and perhaps differences would be ultimately lead perhaps to some kind of advancement in the unity of truth. Okay, you just saw that immediately when you click on the time marker. Now let's take another example at the 1921 mark about John 3, 3 through 4. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You click on that and you go immediately to this clip. Jesus answered in John chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, to the question, how can one be born again in that pericope of the scripture by saying this? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, another example. Time marker 2841. The Great Divide. Natural man versus spiritual man. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So I call it the Great divide. It's the difference between what the Bible calls the natural man and what the Bible calls the spiritual man. Listen to these words by the Apostle Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in his letter to the Corinthians, now we have received not the spirit of the world, 
but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Now listen to this. This is important. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Okay, one more example to show you how this all works. 4113 in the time marker. If you click on this, the following clip is what you'll immediately see. And he says, now the deeds of the flesh, these natural impulses are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, worshiping a false god or anything you put in the place of the one true God, sorcery, messing around with satanic kinds of movies, shows, board games, videos, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. Outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and then he throws in, and things like these. Okay? He gives a laundry list of the kinds of things that most Christians would read and say, Well, I'm not I'm not there. Women. Jealousy, strife, outbursts of anger. Factions, sensuality, it doesn't sound like anybody can go to heaven. I mean, everybody's kind of done this or been a part of this. That's not the apostle's point. His point is, I forewarn you just as I have forewarn you that those who practice such things, and what he means by practice such things is that there is no evident repentance, there's no evident conviction, there's no evident change in their behavior. They are going along to get along. They haven't stood against it in their own hearts, let alone the culture. And he says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here you have a clear example of how the time markers can not only give you a summary of what's contained in the entire video itself without you actually having to spend the time to watch the entire video. It'll also hone you in on the spots you are most interested in hearing about during the time you have available. So check out those time markers before you begin a video, which may save you a lot of time and also give you a good idea what the whole video is about. With that... We'll get into our programming. Thank you.
Greetings and welcome once again to our program. I'm Larry Wessels, your host. I'm the director of Christian Answers. Our ministry uh, is also known by the name of, and that's a copyrighted name, as a matter of fact, uh, Christian Debater. We've done a lot of debates. When you're in Christianity, if you're going to be a, a, an evangelist or an apologist, uh, such as I am, uh, you're going to end up, if you're standing up for the Word of God, you're going to wrestle and grapple with those, those theologies and philosophies that fight against the Christian uh, worldview, well, you're going to end up, if you know your word of God, doing a lot of debating. And that's why we, that's another reason we call ourselves uh, the Christian debater. So anyway, on this program, uh, we're going, as you know, from if any of you out there have watched us for any length of time at all, and that goes back a long way, uh, back for 30 years now. So we, uh, we deal with all kinds of topics, theological topics. So basically, if you watch our channel, you'll never know what topic we're going to throw at you next. <laughs> so uh, the topic today is going to be on church discipline, according to what the scripture teaches. Uh, and church discipline mainly is found in Matthew 18. But what I want to start with on this topic, and I have a very special guest I'll introduce in a moment. Uh, uh, right after I read this text about church discipline, I'm going to introduce our very special guest, and we'll get after it. But anyway, biblically speaking, church discipline, and I'm actually using a book I like to use. You can tell by the torn-up cover. I've used it a lot for a lot of different videos that we've done. Uh, uh, this book is called the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, and is very useful for, and it's called The Concise <laughs> so it's not meant to be super extensive, but it's a quick, nice little biblical reference book that'll come in handy for different topics. So uh, anyway, here's what it says. Church discipline, an ecclesiastical function mandated by the Great Commission to make disciples. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. A disciple is voluntarily subservient to the master and the Supervision of conduct by the church endeavors to school disciples in the Lord's revealed will. The universal form of discipline is the preaching of the word. All discipline seeks to nurture the evidence of saving faith in the fruit of good works. That's James chapter 2, verse 17. It further guards the church, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, through its leaders. The believers required to pay heed to their admonition, that's Hebrews 13.70. The process of formal ecclesiastical discipline extends from loving admonition, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, to excommunication, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. Pattern on Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Steps from private counsel by representatives of the congregation's ruling body through meeting with that body, announcement of the offense to the congregation, usually at first anonymously, with requests for prayer to public naming of the disciplinee, culminating in eventual excommunication, assuming there is a continuing refusal to acknowledge and deal with the sin. And so there you have it from the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. 
editor is Walter A. Ewell, and I recommend this book to any of our any of our viewers. That uh, what a nice, concise book that'll give you a lot of quick reference material on anything you might want to look up with scripture references involved with that. Now, to help me with this broadcast on church discipline is my very special guest, who you now see, who's been hiding in the shadows the whole time, the pastor of my church, Pastor Greg Bancourt. Great to see you, brother. Good to see uh, you, Larry. Thank, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks uh, for having me. Yes, I, I love it. We did some shows before. We're still working on editing those to put them out, but it, it, you know, there's a, quite a bit of a extensive editing process, so we can, let's say, produce a show on raw footage, but by the time we edit it, it might be months later. But right. uh, so people will get familiar with you pretty soon here as we start editing all those shows we did previously, and as we get into this segment of shows we're going to do here. But, uh, you know, we can only go as fast as we can go, you know, and then sometimes that takes time. But uh, yeah. we just do it in the Lord's providence, and providentially he's allowed us to do this today. So uh, yeah. anyway, I want uh, you to introduce yourself to the the people at home, like I said, one thing that greatly impressed me from the shows we did a few months ago uh, was your uh, knowledge and being able to speak and read Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek. There's very few people that can do that. Now, I took New Testament Greek years ago, but I have hardly ever used it. And, you know, it's like I placed out of Spanish at the University of Texas. And, but if you don't, and that was 40 years ago. But if you don't use it, you know what happens. You, you lose, lose it. it. <laughs> but in your profession, you get to practice all the time, especially if we're going to be doing videos. You know, I'll make sure you stay in practice. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so you, I've kind of, I've kind of lost my New Testament Greek a while, uh, decades ago, because I just don't use it. Because usually I have experts like you around. They'll just do it for me, so it, it works out pretty good. So anyway, if you wouldn't mind uh, talking about our church, Day Spring Fellowship in Austin, Texas. Uh, uh, say something about the, and you've got to me uh, a, an impressive theological background. Uh, so, if you could talk about the the seminaries and and schools you've graduated from, and uh, I think you're even part of the Spurgeon Underground or something. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and you've written a book also. So, uh, in fact, uh, we've already created for a previous video. We're still working on that video and editing, uh, but I had your credits all listed in the introduction and it went way down the page. So anyway, if you could introduce yourself a little bit on some of your background, so the viewers will know where you're coming from. Delighted to do so. Uh, so my name is Greg Van Court and I graduated from uh, Southwestern University here in Georgetown, Texas. Went to seminary at Southern Seminary. I got my uh, MDiv from Southern. I also got my Master of Theology from Southern. And I was ABD at Southern. Uh, for those of you who uh, don't know, that means uh, all but dissertation. And uh, I've been uh, pastoring Day Spring Fellowship here in Austin, Texas, for um, in my 11th year of pastoral ministry. It's amazing how the time flies and what a privilege and honor it is to be, uh, uh, you know, called into a profession where I'm constantly in the word of God and meditating mm -hmm on God's thoughts and God's uh, truth uh, day in and day out in the original languages. Um, I, I can't um, imagine a, a higher honor uh, really in life than the one that God has called me to. It's been a joy and a delight uh, to 
serve uh, as a shepherd of God's people and the local church that uh, I was uh, raised in and mentored in. The founding pastor of the church was my pastor, and he and his wife were tragically killed by a drunk driver, uh, which uh, then um, led the church uh, the next year to call me to fill his big shoes and to come uh, pastor this uh, wonderful. You're talking age. about Pastor Jackson Boyette, which our channel has many videos through our ministry with. Yeah. And uh, on sermon audio, for instance, I think he's got like 2,000 sermons there. That's right. Posted. So anyone that wants to check into past Pastor Jackson, in fact, I met him. I used to listen to him on the radio, Christian radio station, back before. I, I was searching for a church that got saved in 1981. Yeah. I would hear this DJ on the Christian <laughs> radio station in 1981. And of course, it turned out to be Jackson Boyette. And I had no idea that uh, he was a pastor of a church because he yeah. was just introducing Christian singers. And, and he did this afternoon show of interviewing other pastors and, and preachers and stuff like that. That was pretty cool. Uh, but I, I had no idea he was uh, actually at a, at a church. And uh, it was kind of interesting how I came across him because uh, as far as the church goes, Day Spring Fellowship, which is a Reformed Baptist church. Yes. So people know, people always want to know what denomination or where you're, what right. angle are you coming from and all that. But yeah. uh, I'm, I'm, I was working at the IRS at the time and I'm taking a, a, a study on how to become an IRS tax examiner. So I'm at the main IRS service center here in Austin, Texas. And this guy that's teaching the class on how to do tax uh, examiner uh, work uh, for IRS returns uh, is talking to this guy. When we go to break, he's talking about religion with this guy. Talking, And I heard him mention Jackson's name. He said, hey, he's got this Bible study on Friday night at his house. You know, <laughs> and uh, I thought that was cool and because yeah. I knew him from the radio. And yeah. I said, really? You're talking about, and I interfered in their conversation, and <laughs> the rest was history, because then I got to uh, go to that church, and then I had a, got with Pastor, and I I was already kind of a cult buster at that time. I, yeah. I, I, I got mentored from uh, Walter Martin, just happened to have his book right here, uh, his mm. book, The Kingdom of the Cults, where he's dealing mm. with all the false prophets, uh Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science. Yeah. Just go right down the list. Because at that time I was still looking for a church home. Yeah. I was going to one church after another on the weekends. Uh, but uh they weren't up to the level that I wanted. I uh, I wanted the deep things of God. I, yeah. I when you go to church, you want to really go into a verse by verse exposition of the scripture get into the original languages like you do and <laughs> all, all that kind of stuff like Jackson did. Uh, and so that's 1981, right? That was yep. a little while ago. Uh, well, I've been in the same church all these years. So I never left day spring. And of course, Jackson was killed in the car accident. And that was the one thing I remember at his funeral, we've got the, the funeral and uh, you're in the, those videos to attribute to Jackson boy yet. But I remember as I looked to him in his uh, casket at that funeral, he actually had a smile on his face yeah. as if he had was seeing Jesus, that he's in a better place. You know, it's right. like, wow, you know, and yeah, better time where we'll get to see him 
later right. with, with Barbara, right. his wife. So it, 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 right. it's going to be a wonderful reunion at that time. But uh, I'm, well, he's, uh, you know, he's the pastor. You you might have the same story that uh, introduced me to uh, recovering uh, the practice of church discipline. He pract- he took that very seriously. Oh, wow. The first time, Excellent. you know, that I ever watched a church go through that process of church discipline was under the leadership of Jackson Boyette. You know, that makes perfect sense because I've been in that church since 1981, right? Yes. And what year did you join? I mean, you were going there before yeah. you went off to seminary in Kentucky, right? Uh, That's right. That's right. Uh, I, uh, My wife and I joined Dayspring in 2002. Okay. So I, I've got a little seniority on you. You do. <laughs> <laughs> so when you mentioned that Jackson was teaching church this one, see, since I haven't really gone to any other church as a member, yes, I'm. I just expected everybody to be practicing church discipline because it's biblical. Right, it's what the Bible teaches. And that's one reason I've been a day spring all these years up to right. the present, yeah. because it was into the deep things of God, the Word of God. Uh, if Jesus said it, you're going to do it, and that's the way it is. You're not going to just make up some namby pamby stuff to get around it. Uh, And so I was already used to church discipline. Yes. And so, like you just said, you you learned it from (laughs) Jackson himself there. So that's the topic today. I read a little thing, as you heard from uh, this book, Evangelical Dictionary of Theology about it, which uh, gave you the biblical references. And uh, I would like, and in fact, uh, one thing that made me come up with this topic because I was assuming all along that most churches practice it because it's what Jesus said to do uh, right out of his own mouth, as a matter of fact, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so if you're a Christian church or a pastor or an elder, why wouldn't you do what Jesus said? And uh, so therefore, uh, and we just went not too long ago. I was at the church there when we, you had to announce the problem to the whole church. And yeah. name the person that was, uh, you know, in air in sin. So uh, I'll let you pick it up from here. Uh, you're well prepared for this. We've just went through some of this. I, I just want, if there's any pastors or preachers or elders or even deacons, it doesn't matter if you're a church officer of some sort, uh, you ought to be paying attention to this particular episode, even if you're a, a layman in a church. Yeah. Why isn't your church practicing church discipline. You know, now uh, as we we're going to be playing some clips of uh, Rob Zins, who was a pastor and an elder at a church for 19 years. I videotaped him telling them well, you and me were going to do this video yesterday. We, he was here yesterday from North Carolina, but uh, I'm going to clip him in somewhere along this line. But in one of the yeah. part of what he said is uh, as far as uh the reasons some of the people don't practice, some of these churches don't practice church discipline is because they're mega churches. They've got mm-hmm, mm-hmm. over 10,000 people in the church. And yeah. these can't kind of shepherd a group that large. I know it's just too huge. And people later in this video, they'll see Rob talking about these things. Yeah. I'm going to concentrate on you. And we'll, I'll, when we're editing, we'll put them in somewhere that won't yeah. interfere with what you're talking about. So, yeah. Pastor, if you don't mind, uh, start stressing and just, you don't have to worry about me so much at all. Uh, just yeah. go with your presentation 
Good. And uh, I'll just throw in my two cents worth and try to let you say everything you need to say on this topic. So go ahead. Okay. I'll start to run and uh, just uh, interrupt me, ask questions if you need me to stop, but I'll I'll keep going otherwise. That's uh, Don't worry. I'm always doing <laughs> stuff like that, but, but I'll try to give you a break as much as I can. Go ahead. All right. <laughs> Well, you had uh, you'd asked uh, why do why do so many churches not practice church discipline? And I think probably ninety uh, percent of them that don't don't out of the fear of man and just wanting those numbers and wanting the approval of others uh, and knowing that uh, church discipline can be misconstrued as unloving when in fact it is the most loving thing we can do to for a brother or a sister who is uh, straying. Uh, but there is that uh, that constant fear of man wanting to be a people pleaser uh, at mm-hmm. uh, churches. And I think that goes to the church growth movement and comes out of so many uh, other false uh, teachings and uh, trends that have adversely affected uh, local churches. I want to begin just by having you imagine a church in which one of its members in good standing, so a respected longtime member of the congregation, raised his family uh, there in this local church, uh, suddenly decides that he's no longer in love with his wife of many years. He's now in love with his secretary, and he plans to divorce his wife, put her away, and marry his secretary, and then start a new family with her. And the wife uh, reminds him of his covenant promises that he made to her and calls upon him to repent of his sinful course that he's about to go down, but he doesn't listen to her. He doesn't repent. Uh, And so the jilted wife seeks out the help of uh, their pastor and the pastor, perhaps with the help of his staff or the elders, they get involved. They attempt to uh, turn the man from his sinful path. But the man tells him that uh, it's it's about his happiness, uh, his life, and it's really none of their business. And so in the end, he divorces his wife. He remarries the other woman. The church leaders then throw up their hands in the air and say, well, it's a done deal now. Uh, we all just have to live with the, with this situation. We have to forgive him. That's our Christian duty and, and move on. And the new wife then joins uh, the church and the man continues to come and partake of the Lord's Supper, worship there in that church, but he sits with his new family on the opposite aisle of the church from his ex-wife and and their children. You can just imagine uh, the division that that causes in the church, and that's the type of injustice that many, and and really, if we're honest, most churches will perpetrate and, and compound by their neglect of pursuing faithfulness to the Lord's words in Matthew 18 and many other places in the New Testament. You know, Jesus... If I can interrupt interrupt this moment, uh, there's something called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes. And uh, before we proceed any further, I would like you to stress what is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the importance of that, and then that ties right into why there is church discipline. So yeah. if you could uh, tell the audience out there, especially our new viewers, yeah, uh, there's always somebody new that's never seen any of our shows, right? That's coming along, and uh, it's always good to get the good gospel in a video if we can do that. And we try to do that every show. So yeah. go ahead, brother, and give the gospel, 
and then tie that in why that's so important with church discipline. Because if Christ Absolutely. is the most important, yeah. why wouldn't we do what Christ says to do? So go yeah. ahead. Great. Delighted to do that. So in a nutshell, I like to uh, begin just with the context in which we hear the gospel, which is a creation, fall, and promise. God purposely created the whole world by speaking it into existence with an end in view to glorify himself through uh, redemption of uh, sinners. And so uh, that's why there was the fall as Adam and Eve uh, were tempted in the garden. They sinned against God, doubting his word. It plunged all of humanity into a, a state of sinfulness so that we're born sinners and we sin because we are sinners. Uh, and we're under the wrath and the judgment of God, which is justly due us because of our sin. But God didn't decide to wipe us out. He made a promise in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That's talking about Jesus uh, eventually coming into the world and reversing the curse and bringing about restoring the broken relationship between God and his people, bringing reconciliation, forgiveness of all sin. And that promise, of course, is developed all throughout the Old Testament. You get it, uh, you know, reiterated with Abraham and his promised seed to David and his promised seed. And then eventually the fulfillment of that promise comes, which is the good news. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he was born of a virgin, just as, as Scripture said he would be, that he lived a sinless life because he was truly God and truly man, a righteous uh, man who there was no sin, no deceit, no guile. He rendered full obedience to God throughout his lifetime, which was in the place of his people so that his righteousness could be credited to those who have faith in Jesus. He went on to die a sacrificial death on the cross. He went willingly to bear the wrath of God's uh, wrath against our sins in our place as a substitute so that all of our sins could be washed away and forgiven because he was punished for them. They've all been punished on Jesus uh, in our place on the cross. And then he triumphantly rose from the dead because death could not hold him. He was victor over the grave, over death, over sin. He was exalted by being raised to the right hand of God, where he is this very moment reigning and ruling over all creation, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to him. And very importantly, he is coming back again bodily to judge the living and the dead. Uh, therefore, we must repent of our sins, turn and place our faith into Jesus Christ so that we might be reconciled to God and, and forgiven of our sins and saved and escape the judgment of that uh, great and awful day when Jesus will judge the living and the dead and then usher in a new heavens and a new earth for all of his people who have believed into him, who will live with him in paradise forever and ever. And that really does uh, dovetail into our discussion of church discipline, because the goal of church discipline is reconciliation. And the gospel is about reconciliation. It's being restored to relationship with God. It's about did, uh, did Jesus. Did yeah. Jesus uh, ordain a church organization or did he just say you can be a Lone Ranger Christian out there and just do your own thing uh, without a church organization? Did Jesus ever ordain something like that to take place? 
Absolutely. Uh, Jesus uh, speaks even before uh, he speaks through his apostles in the rest of the New Testament, uh, after the birth of the church and Pentecost, Jesus in his earthly ministry is already speaking in the context of a local church who, who understands their Christ-given authority to bind and to loose, uh, which is to publicly affirm who does and who does not belong to and represent Jesus. And um, he uh, he talks about pursuing and bringing back individual believers who go astray. And, and that uh, is something that he promises that he will do through, by means of his local church, through church discipline. And that's what Matthew 18, 15 to 35 is all about. So church, church discipline, church organization, pastors and preachers, all these things are ordained yes. by God and by Jesus. That's right. And so, and so therefore, yeah. the, the, the Lone Ranger Christian that sits at home, uh, maybe drinking a beer and sending money to Benny Hinn on TV, right. isn't good enough to be called church. Is that right? They need That's to be right. In fact, I mean, if you read if you read your New Testament, there is no category at all for a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, who is not a member of a local church. That category just does not exist. And it's why the Apostle Paul and other apostles can write letters, not to individual people, but to the churches, to the churches in Asia, yeah. or to the church in Rome. Isn't there a passage, in, maybe in Hebrews or something, that says, forsake not yourself, the gathering together? Uh, you're told not to just be out there by yourself and just kind of do, do your own Christianity. Uh, yeah, sadly, be... you know, there's a, a consumerist mindset here in the West that thinks of uh, Christianity and other religions just in terms of uh, consuming and, you know, uh, receiving something. That's something that you can do just on the internet, uh, you know, watching a live stream of a service or a pre-recorded sermon. But coming and actually being present in the corporate gathering of the church and committing yourself to a particular body of Christ, that is uh, fulfilling uh, God's purpose for the believer and that he's given us the Holy Spirit with spiritual gifts that are meant to build up and edify and give back to our brothers and sisters. And so that's aren't something there, that you can't do from home. Right. Now, aren't there like four things the church usually does, like uh, yep. fellowship? Uh, yeah, you know, the fellowship, uh, prayers, uh, the uh, breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, which we do together corporately every uh, Sunday at our church. Yeah. Uh, and um, let's see, fellowship, prayers, Lord's Supper, and devotion to the apostles' teaching. Exactly. Apostles teaching. Yes. Now, if you're going to follow Jesus and the apostles teaching, which is hearing the word of God. Yes. You you can't do that without a, a local gathering of the saints, like we That's find right. in the scripture throughout. And, and you got elders and deacons and all this stuff mentioned in first and second Timothy and so forth. Yes. Uh, that that's all required by God and that's ordained by God. It is. This, it's ordained by God. It's the means by which God sanctifies his people. And my goodness, I can't even imagine not being connected with, united with, and submitted uh, to a local body of believers who bless me so greatly and are so instrumental yeah. in my walk with Jesus Christ. 
you know, when I got born again on May 16th, 1981, I remember the day and the time and what I was doing. It's like one of those big events in your life. You know, you just remember yeah. that moment and what was going on at the time. And that night I'm, uh, I'm reading second Timothy chapter three, verses one through five, you yeah. know, in the last days, perilous times shall come. Blah, blah. Uh, men will be lovers of themselves, boasters and prideful. Right. And, all that. and I get down to verse five and it says having a form of religion. Yes. But denying the power thereof. That's right. <laughs> but that, uh, that's where I was convicted. That's where God, the Holy Spirit, convicted me of my sin. I mean, I fell on the floor. I knew I was lost. I cried out to Jesus. I was in tears. I mean, it was it yeah. was one of those, the, the biggest moment of my life. And I could almost hear the angels singing in my, yeah. Yeah, it was just strange. But uh, yeah. anyway, I got saved right there. And then I was reading my Bible after that like yeah. 12 hours a day. Cause I was only working one a part-time job at that time, 17 hours a week. I just graduated from UT. So then I just had this part-time job at that time because of school, but I graduated Yeah, and I, the Lord saves me right after I graduate and I've got all this free time, you know, and I'm reading the Bible and then I read all this stuff you're talking about, yeah. about being part of a fellowship. Yeah. So I spend the next bunch of months trying to find a decent church, that I feel comfortable with that really gets into the deep things of God. And right. as we already discussed, that's where I found Day Springs Fellowship yeah. in Jackson Boyette. And for anyone to just think, well, I don't need to attend church. It's no big deal. And uh, I need to be happy. I need to be happy instead of, you know, although the scripture says you're going to suffer, you know, it's a furnace of affliction, as I think right. Jeremiah or Isaiah said. I mean, you got a lot of trouble, and you need yeah. to be in that fellowship to get you through and discipleship and all that. So Absolutely. anyway, I want to I want to get you back on track now. I just felt it's important to establish yeah. the importance of the church because without the importance of it being ordained by God and Jesus yeah. Himself, yeah, what does it matter about church discipline? Yeah, so no, that right. sets the base. You got to have the church. Yeah. Then the discipline built on top of that. So go ahead. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. Spurgeon, I think, called the church the loveliest place on earth. And it's a beautiful, it's the bride of Jesus Christ. So if if you say that you love Jesus, but you don't love his people, you don't love his church, you don't really love Jesus. And and those two really do go together. Right. So Jesus did found uh, the the church uh, with its organization, its officers, its you know uh, pastors, elders, and and its deacons, and really uh, that we have a lot uh, of a blueprint in the Bible for how church is to operate. And one of those um, uh, means that God uses to bless His people within the local church is the means of church discipline. Uh, and it uh, it is very much linked with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The beginning of our uh, life with Jesus involves what? Repentance of sin and putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And when a brother refuses to repent and, and live an ongoing life of faith and repentance, that's when church discipline comes in as we go after them and call them back and bring them back to that reconciliation with God uh, on the basis of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, mm-hmm. What I'd like to do is just kind of walk through for us the steps of church discipline that the Bible gives us, that Jesus Christ uh, gives us in his word. Uh, and so I'm going to begin just in Matthew 18, uh, verses 15 through 35. It's what it's all about. Uh, in these verses, we see that Jesus 
He calls his church to love one another enough to do what is necessary to see individual brothers or sisters repenting of their sins and and being restored and knowing that mercy and forgiveness that Jesus shows us and commands us to extend to others. So I, I briefly just want to step through the process that Jesus outlines for us in Matthew 18. But before I do, I want to say a brief word about what the first step in church church discipline looks like, because it's common for Christians to view verse 15 here in chapter 18 of Matthew as the first step. But I'm going to argue it's the second step, that the first step is actually seen up in verses 8 and 9 of Matthew 18. So Jesus says there, that if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, the main point of the Lord's illustrations here is that we must deal drastically radically with our own individual sin. We we can't pamper it or flirt with it or enjoy kind of nibbling around the edges of it, right? We're to hate our sin. We're to crush it, to make war against it, to to dig it out of our hearts. And so we must you know you know you just you just earned some deep respect respect already on this topic because it it has to be important for me to write in my Walter Martin Colts Reference Bible because it's filled <laughs> with notes and references. And I just added to my Bible here, first step in church discipline. Yes. Verses eight. <laughs> you you earned a, a notation in my Bible of 40 years. So very Praise good, God. brother. You're on the right track. <laughs> Praise on, God. <laughs> so in the case of adulterous lust, if your eye leads you astray, tear it out. Or if your hand is the culprit, then then cut it off. Now, while some in the history of the church have actually applied such commands literally, you know, most of us have understood these examples to be uh, figurative. And I believe it's obvious that they should be taken figuratively because what's the main problem with the literal approach? The main (laughs) problem with taking these examples literally isn't just that you maim yourself. It, it only deals with the outward and physical right. and never deals with the heart, not with the inward disposition but of you're, the heart. You're familiar with church Jesus history, right? Yes. You, you know who Origen was. Absolutely. He castrated now, tell, tell the people, since you're knowledgeable in church history, as well yeah. as a bunch of other stuff, yeah. uh, what did Origen do to solve his problems? Yeah, so Origen, his- Origen, like many men, he struggled with and battled uh, with lust. And mm-hmm. he dealt with that battle by physically castrating himself, which, of course, just um, was uh, a, a, a sinful mutilation of his mm-hmm. own body that he was to be a good steward of. And it right. never dealt with the problem that was in his heart, which is Jesus's main point is to mm-hmm. is to take these things. So, so it seriously. didn't do him a bit of good to do that. Not a bit of good. Well, it, in, more, in more ways than one. That's right. That's right. So. You know, figuratively, what Jesus is saying is that we must do whatever it takes to fight against sin. We have to mm-hmm. flee immorality. We have to guard mm-hmm. our hearts. Uh, we have to be transparent with our spouse, with our 
parents, with our pastors. We, we have to deal with sin head on. It's a, it's a radical fight that takes drastic measures, understanding that sin begins in the heart and it carries eternal consequences so that we would be you know willing to make all the necessary sacrifices to uproot sin from the heart. And that's really the first step of church discipline to nip sin in the bud, as it were, uh, before anyone even sees the the bad fruit that comes from it and needs to then step in to correct us. And, you know, in our local church, Larry, we have the opportunity to practice this first step of church discipline every Sunday as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And we take the time every Lord's Day to do what? Examine ourselves. So, So that first step of church discipline is godly self-examination and self-correction, which in many ways is the most important of all of these steps we're about to talk about. Now, you just mentioned like the communion. What's the, yes. And I think they read every every week, 1 Corinthians 11. Yes. And there's always that threat in there yeah. about taking the Lord's Supper as his communion. In an unworthy manner. There you go. And what are the consequences that just for people that didn't know that now they, they can go yeah. read that chapter themselves, but yeah. to just, just make the, 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 the one verse that really scares a lot sure. of people have never noticed that before. Go ahead and tell us that. Yeah. So the apostle Paul says that, um, you know, some in the church in Corinth were partaking of the Lord's supper in an unworthy manner. And he yeah. says, this is the reason why many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. That's right. So there's a threat of death there. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's sickness. I mean, it's, it's yeah. A lot of people don't realize because if they take that Lord's Supper in yeah. vain, there's consequences to that. There sin. are deadly consequences. And, you know, we see that because the the cup uh, of uh, blessing that, that represents the blood of Christ that is the sign of the new covenant. Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And signs of God's covenants are taken very seriously. So you think of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the sign was the Sabbath. And if you broke Mm -hmm. the Sabbath, which was the sign of the covenant by Mm -hmm. picking up sticks on Saturday, as one one brother did, you were put to death. Uh, The Mm -hmm. sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. God came down to uh, put Moses to death in, in the book of Exodus because he had neglected to circumcise his son. And it was only when his wife, Zipporah, circumcised their son that God's deadly wrath was averted. So these signs of God's covenants, he takes very, very seriously. Oh, of course. And you don't you wouldn't realize that in today's culture that we have here in America or maybe even around the world because of a. Uh, the curse of all these phony TV preachers everywhere because they got all the money and they can do satellite TV out to all these countries and promote right. everything. But it's all about John three sixteen. God loves everybody, so therefore His discipline doesn't exist. You can pretty yes. much, oh, God loves me, and I can just do anything I want, and right. uh, I'll be fine. There's no repentance. There's yeah. there's no uh, deep effort to repent of your sins and. Do the righteous and practice righteousness. That's right. Uh, that's because right. you think God will just wave his hand. Oh, that's all right. You know, and just kind of yeah. wink at it. No big deal. That's uh, right. And people aren't taking God seriously because of this poor theology they're being fed on a regular basis, along with yeah. big, these guys preaching for give me money, help me money, money, money. Right. Uh, yeah. So 
I thought just mentioning this, just on communion. I mean, there's yeah. a threat right there from God. You know, that's right. I mean, God is God is holy, and we are right. to be holy as He is holy. Right. Uh, he expects obedience, and mm-hmm. He expects us to bow to His lordship and to follow His will and not our own. He takes that very seriously. Oh yes, yes. So if someone says, "Well," I just want to be happy. I don't want to do a lot of these things that Jesus wants me to do because I'm, yeah, I'm disturbed by that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that doesn't cut it. That doesn't cut it with God. That's uh, right. That's right. And if he and there's discipline against true Christians that go against that, there's also yeah. the threat of death that you yeah. get sick or yeah. he might just kill you, take yeah. you out, yeah, for not doing what's right. That's right. Uh, and That's people right. don't realize this. So anyway, yeah. go ahead. I keep interrupting, but there, <laughs> you bring up so many good biblical points to bring yeah. into the issue. Yeah. So uh, I think we're so going to we... have a well-orbed video here by the time this is through. Excellent. Uh, a lot of people things that people didn't realize, but go ahead. Go ahead. What you were saying? Yeah. So um, so self-examination is really that first step of church discipline. And if you're a local church that celebrates the Lord's Supper every week, that's a weekly opportunity for self-examination. But for a brother who fails in that first step, where where their sin is left unchecked uh, in the heart so that it then leads to outward uh, serious and unrepentant sin, Jesus, he gives the next steps for church discipline in verses 15 uh, to 20 of Matthew 18. Uh, We could summarize uh, this under the command to uh, pursue the repentance of your brother with as little humiliation to him as possible. So one of the things that Jesus recognizes in these verses is that an individual going astray starts with one sin concerning which he shows no repentance. And the Bible, as we've been talking about, it knows nothing of a Christian who's not united with a local church. Therefore, Jesus uh, is talking about, he's picturing an individual in a local church who's walking with others with whom you know they've linked arms together in pursuit of God honoring gospel living together in a community of faith. And it's in those occasions that any one of us uh, may fall into sin and need someone outside of us who can see our situation and our heart more clearly than we do and to help us to turn from our sins. Because after all, our hearts can be deceiving. Therefore, the Lord, he gives clear instructions in those circumstances, saying in verse uh, 15 here, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So, So we see that Jesus pictures his people being kept from going astray through just small interactions between individuals one on one within the church. Uh, where your brother loves you enough to come to you privately to note you have fallen into sin, and then you repent. And that kind of thing, it may well happen consistently in any healthy church. Obviously, this doesn't happen because we're just setting ourselves to look for areas uh, of needed correction in others and then pounce on them. In fact, uh, not only do we not set ourselves in that direction, we do the exact opposite, right? We look for opportunities where we can pounce with encouragement towards one another uh, and point out the clear and evident grace of God uh, that's seen in one another's lives. That that should really be the tenor uh, and the culture of the local church. 
Yeah, because we are fallen, there will be times when any one of us needs help and needs correction. I've had people, you know, love me enough to do that in my life over the years. And I've walked in the place of lovingly and gently helping my brother or my sister in this way as well. And when we see these things happen, we're we're loving each other enough to fight for each other's souls. So to refuse, you know, to gently, lovingly correct someone who is clearly in a place of serious public and unrepentant sin, that is by no means a loving act. But notice in verse uh, 15 here that Jesus makes clear as well that you're to tell him his fault between you and him alone. So you don't instantly include other people. You don't go tell others about his sin. In essence, what Jesus is showing us here is that he wants the repentance of his people with the least amount of humiliation to them as possible. And isn't that just extremely kind and gentle and loving of our Lord? If a sin problem can get resolved between just two Christians alone by themselves, then the case is closed and no one else has to know about it. it that, that's a beautiful reconciliation. However, if if our brother does not repent, then Jesus shows us that repentance is so precious. Repentance is so necessary that he calls us to, to sort of up the humiliation a small degree if there is not repentance with that one-on-one -on -one interaction. So he gives now, us... You know, you know yeah. what you just said is so important. I just want to emphasize it to the sure. viewing audience that uh, there's so many people... In fact, we've done videos on this before about some of these groups out there like GES and other Grace Evangelical Society. Uh, they say, well, you can just make a pro uh, profession of faith and then you can live like a carnal Christian right. and you never have to repent. You don't have to do anything the Lord says. You're just you're saved because you made, you know, your pick your your, your tickets punched and you're <laughs> on the way to heaven. So it doesn't matter how you live. And I think that's absolute heresy. Because yes. if you throw out the, the, the repentance and faith, because uh, that's what Jesus always emphasized. You must right. repent, uh, yeah. have faith. Uh, he was always warning people about this stuff. That's right. Uh, that, just, that, just tell that, people, oh, you just went, you walked an aisle at, a, yeah. at an yeah. altar call, or you did this, or you did that. But there's no, there's no evidence that you repented of anything. That's you just right. have this this verbal. So you have any quick comments on that real fast? Yeah, you're exactly that right. That is a, it's a terrible heresy. It's a great evil. And we've seen the destruction that it's uh, wrought in uh, the churches in the West, those who uh, preach and teach and believe that all you have to do is pray a prayer or sign a card or walk an aisle right, right, or get baptized. Right. And then you're, and then you're good and you can live however you want to live. That uh, goes so contrary to the gospel and to what uh, Jesus uh, has saved us to, right? He hasn't just saved us from the wrath of God, but he has saved us to this beautiful upward call of uh, sanctification, a life of following him, of constantly repenting of sin and, and, and strengthening our faith in him. In fact, um, you know, we're in the month of October here, so we're coming up on Reformation Day when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the Wittenberg door. And the first of those theses, the first thesis said that all of the Christian life is repentance, uh, which Amen. was a very important uh, a thesis. Amen. And that's, that's borne out in the word of God. That is the Christian life. It's a life yes, of it is. ongoing repentance. 
Uh, now, what's interesting about uh, repentance is that uh, these people that deny repentance, it's antinomianism, but uh, what's interesting about that, it's a way of works righteousness because they walked an aisle somewhere. Right. They or did they something. said a prayer to one of these phony TV preachers. Yeah. Uh, they think that work that they did, or I gave a dollar and threw it in the, the collection plate, so I must right. be a Christian. Yeah. Uh, the stuff like that. Uh, yeah. they, it's actually a works righteousness salvation. Absolutely. Without repentance. So it's just an excuse to get away from repentance. Yeah. So that's right. Anyway, but great point on that uh, first thesis there. I I forgot about that one. So (laughs) I'm getting old now. So I start forgetting a few things. So you help remind (laughs) me. So go ahead, brother. Keep going. Okay. So uh, Jesus gives us in verse 16 here, Jesus gives us uh, step three of church discipline. He says, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So uh, this this bringing in of other witnesses, uh, it it ups the level of humiliation a bit, uh, even though it's still limited. But Jesus's point is both to show the importance of repentance and to help make sure that this isn't a situation of he said, she said, right? Jesus takes the phrase uh, two or three witnesses from Deuteronomy 19, which in context, it's meant to protect people against false accusations. So Deuteronomy, in fact, it calls for a thorough investigation whenever there's any doubt about the crime. And I take it that Jesus likewise means for Christians to be concerned with truth and justice, which may require due diligence. The two or three witnesses, they need to be able to confirm that, you know, indeed there is a serious and outward offense that's uh, that, that's going on here. And the offender is truly unrepentant. He's not repenting. Hopefully involving other people will either bring the offender to his senses or it'll help the offended see that he shouldn't be so offended that we've seen that as well. So both this step and the prior step, it can occur over several meetings, whatever the parties uh, uh, considered to be prudent. So Jesus he isn't envisioning a situation where someone is simply making a charge against another person that may or may not be true. Rather, this is a case of, of clear, recognized, established sin that is unrepentant. And then bringing in another witness or two allows them to clearly bear witness to what's going on here with this brother who is publicly sinning and unwilling to repent. And if that brings about repentance, we rejoice and it goes no further. There's reconciliation. However, if that does not bring about repentance, then things are really ratcheted up uh, a step in step four of church discipline. Jesus says here in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That, that, That is to say, repentance is so important that if it's not achieved by the coming in of one or two witnesses, then the whole local church should be told of this issue in a public way. The, the idea is that the church then has the opportunity as a whole community to pursue that individual and hopefully turn them towards repentance. You know, in our local church, this is done through the elders since the Lord has given the church elders to provide oversight in all of the church's affairs and to shepherd uh, the those who have put their souls under the care of the elders. 
So the elders will announce to the whole church the name of the party charged with public, serious, and unrepentant sin. Uh, they'll provide a very brief description of that sin, a description worded so as to not cause others to stumble or to bring undue embarrassment on any uh, family members. And then they'll give the congregation the opportunity to sign a letter calling on the sinner to repentance and will give the church members adequate time to then seek out that sinner to call him or her to repentance. But in the end, if that doesn't work, if, if step uh, four of church discipline doesn't lead to repentance, step five of church discipline, the individual is then to be removed from membership in the body of Christ. This is a very serious step. And Jesus goes it sounds on. Sounds like excommunication. That's right. Excommunication is what we call it. Uh, Jesus, he, he goes on in the second half of uh, verse 17. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, you hear the emphasis there on uh, how the church calling on the individual to repent. That's a strong, a strong pleading uh, and, and, and should be powerful. Uh, uh, doesn't listen even to the church. Then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So um, the sixth step of church discipline is exclusion from the fellowship or a membership of the church, which essentially means exclusion from communion, exclusion from the Lord's table. Uh, that's what Jesus means by telling us to treat the individual as a Gentile or as a tax collector. So the idea is that the individual is removed from the fellowship, the communion of the church, or excommunicated, as the church has historically referred to this step of church discipline. This is the act of binding that Jesus gave his church authority to do back in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. And this is such a significant and important congregational step because ultimately Jesus, he did not give the keys of the kingdom and the authority to bind and to loose just to the elders or just to the pastor, but to the, the entire local church as a whole. So this is one of the most congregational actions that we engage in at our local church. It's the church's act of saying, you know, we publicly recognize that this one person uh, is not giving evidence of belonging to Jesus anymore and should not be seen as a representative of Jesus Christ. Their profession of faith is no longer credible. And we again give the congregation the opportunity in our church to sign a letter excommunicating the former member and calling on them once again to repent, to be reconciled and to be restored. And let me just be very clear on what this step entails. So excommunication is not shunning, right? Shunning is, is a common practice in other false religions and in cults, but it's not a Christian practice. So excommunication is not uh, ghosting someone or canceling someone to use our contemporary lingo. Rather, the unrepentant sinner is to be treated as someone outside of God's covenant people, someone who should not partake of Christ's covenant meal, but nevertheless, someone who should be encouraged to continue attending the church's gatherings. And I know from experience, 
that church members often wonder whether a person who's been excluded from membership and from the Lord's table can continue to come and attend the church's weekly gatherings, as well as how they should interact with that person uh, throughout the week. Well, the New Testament addresses this matter in a number of uh, places in different circumstances, which might well require different responses. But pursuing faithfulness in these matters generally falls under two points. So first, except for situations in which the unrepentant party's presence is a physical threat to the congregation, there are those those situations, that, except for that, then a church should welcome that person's attendance in the weekly gathering. In fact, there's no better place for a person under church discipline to be than sitting under the preaching of God's living and active word and hearing that gospel. Secondly, though uh, the family members of a disciplined individual should certainly continue to fulfill all of the biblical obligations of family life, the whole tenor of church members' relationship with a disciplined individual should markedly change, right? Interactions should not be characterized by uh, a casualness or chumminess, but by deliberate conversations about faith and repentance. In other words, our interaction should be evangelistic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, treating the person as an unbeliever, which means loving them enough to speak the truth to them in love, pointing them to that salvation that will be theirs if they would only turn to Jesus in repentance and in faith. So we see then well, uh, here in Matthew well, 18. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry to Go interrupt, ahead. but uh, yeah. I wanted to ask a question on, yeah. okay, so people that have been, in a, unfortunately, you know, I've been at, it's not unfortunate, I've been at Dayspring. It's a deep into the Word of God church, and that's why yeah. I've stayed there, because it's just, if you want to get fed, you want fat sheep that have been fed really well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the church to go to, Dayspring Fellowship. That's why I've stayed there for 41 years. Amen. Uh, and and I said, unfortunately, because over all those 41 years, I've seen a lot of church discipline. Yes. You know, long before you were there and everything else, just usually it has, it's usually on sexual issues, you know, a husband right. being unfaithful or his wife or the wife being unfaithful to her husband, stuff like that. Right. Uh, and, and, and so all the steps you just mentioned, which are all thoroughly biblical, uh, I've seen them all. Uh, the question I have for you just at this point is, uh, okay, so, and I agree with everything you said. The interesting question that came up in my mind is, okay, so you've got an excommunicated person yes. who comes back to, and I've seen this happen. Uh, they, 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 they've been ex excommunicated under discipline, and they come back to the church, and they're there for the sermon and all that. Yep. But at our church, we have communion every week, which I right. think is great. I think that's the way it should be. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you're saying the one thing they shouldn't get is the communion cup. Right. And so so you have someone sitting in a pew that's excommunicated or, you know, that's being disciplined, under discipline. Right. What do you have? What do you instruct the deacons to do when they're passing that cup? Do you I mean, you don't want them to get that cup. Do you? <laughs> you don't want them. Yeah, that's a great. That's a great question, Larry. This is, and that's a question that comes up uh, often: is what do you do with an excommunicated member who does come to church, and and then uh, 
uh, proceeds to start to partake of uh, exactly. the Lord's Supper. Now, first exactly. thing I want to say is that we make it very clear before we even uh, celebrate communion together, we make it very clear who is allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper. And we say three things. We say, first, you have to be one who is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. If you've been saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to his glory alone. That's most important. Secondly, we ask that you be a baptized believer. At our church, we leave that up to your individual conscience. And then finally, we say these words. You must not be under church discipline from your local congregation so that we might respect the work of the Lord as he builds his church here in this world. And so we, we make it very clear, if you're under church discipline, this, this meal is not for you. And then the question comes, what if they ignore that? What if they, they hear right. those words? If they're ignoring go, everything else, why yeah, wouldn't? and go to partake it anyway. <laughs> do, do, do you have someone jump in and say, no, take that away from uh, and, and I think the answer is no. That you, you let them... Um, disobey uh and, and and they're doing so to the detriment of their life right they're they're yes. partaking because yeah, of the threat we already mentioned way. yes there's, there's a biblical threat in there so. absolutely absolutely so i don't think that we have to physically wrest that out of their hands or try to get into their mouth and get the bread out you know but we do right. um we do let them um uh, uh eat that to their own harm if uh, they've yeah, been that's duly, what's going to happen they've been duly that's warned. from god yeah uh, so i think that's the wise way to do it because yeah. what you just I said no i can see <laughs> mayhem because yeah. they've been warned that's you, right you read those those conditions yeah and if they still don't want to be admonished well that's then they right. bring the wrath of god down on their own heads that's exactly and, right that's on them, not on the church. So Absolutely. That's I, I totally on them. agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, go ahead. I'm sorry I'm interrupting you so much. No, but you're not bringing at all. up so much good stuff to, because <laughs> I'm, I'm listening to you as a, a viewer would listen to yes. you at yes. home. And I'm trying to think of, well, what would the viewers think when he says that? You know, yes. so I'm kind of like helping out the viewers, I hope, uh, yeah. get a great. better understanding of what you're talking about. I'll say, go yeah. ahead. Uh, I think it's no coincidence that Jesus is teaching here on the steps of church discipline, they come right on the heels of verses 10 through 14, which is the parable of the lost sheep. So mm -hmm. this is the Lord's prescribed means for going after a lost sheep who has gone astray. Uh, it's through the church, the local church, pursuing those who have gone astray in church discipline. So we're to, we're to run after each other when our brother or sister has gone astray, pursuing sin, not turning to the Lord in repentance. And it's important to point out, you know, repentance is the way that we live the Christian life. We, we as Christians, every day, yes, we welcome the opportunity to repent. I mean, repentance should be sweet to us and, and a pervasive, you know, all of life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply in Christ and walking with him and following him. Uh, and there are times when we will need others to help us in coming to repentance. That's why the Lord has given us the local church. And that's why he's given us brothers and sisters. And that's why he's given us careful instructions to his people concerning how we're to pursue one another. Uh, one of the clearest elements in this instruction is that the Lord graciously 
and lovingly wants our repentance with the least amount of humiliation possible for us. Now, there is one final step of church discipline, the process of church discipline. Uh, there is a, a seventh step which doesn't get mentioned often, uh, and it doesn't occur in our passage here in Matthew 18, but it does need to be included. And this, in fact, it serves as a good reminder. You know, Matthew 18 is not the exclusive go-to passage giving instructions on church discipline, right? The Lord describes the process of church discipline in a number of other places, including 1 Corinthians uh, 5, uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 8, which describes uh, that final step of church discipline, uh, Galatians 6, 1, Ephesians 5, 11, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 15, 2 Timothy 5, 19 to 20, 2 Timothy 3, 5, uh, Titus 3, 9 to 11, 2 John 2, and you can even think of Jude uh, 22 and 23. Uh, and so many, many other places that talk about church discipline, uh, it's expected of the local church. But that final step of church discipline is, is the most glorious. And, and we at our church, we've had the joy of performing this final step. It, it's the step of restoration. And so we never, ever just write anybody off as long as they have breath. Right, restoration into the fellowship of the church that occurs when repentance happens, when when there are clear signs of true repentance. So all it takes to come out from under church discipline is simple repentance. What what true repentance looks like that depends on the nature of the sin. And sometimes you know repentance in a church discipline situation is really a black and white matter. Other times, the question of true repentance can be difficult to discern and one that requires much wisdom on the part of the elders. But caution must be balanced with compassion, right? Once a church does decide to restore a repenting individual to its fellowship, back to the Lord's table, back into membership, there should be no talk of a probationary period or some kind of second-class citizenship. Rather, the church should enthusiastically and publicly pronounce its forgiveness, according to John 20, 23, affirm its love for the repenting individual, according to 2 Corinthians 2, 8, and then celebrate their restoration, according to Luke 15, 24. There's nothing more glorious than a wayward sheep that has been lost being returned back to the fold. And this is the goal of church discipline, for the good of the individual, for the good of the church, and for the glory of Christ. So it is, it's far from a harsh, unloving act, as many churches who don't practice it view it. It is one of the most loving acts that, that the Lord Jesus has ordained for us to do, to reach out and to rescue those who have fallen. Okay, well said. Um, you're, you make, you're filling up my page here with notes. So uh, it's just like Jackson used to do. <laughs> he takes his Bible and takes I mean, writing all over. Uh, but, but anyway, it was great. Uh, so now uh, we've gone through, it sounds like, seven steps in, yes. from, from your list. Excellent points. 
all the way through with all the cross references and everything else. Uh, so now, now for a specific example of the seven steps, uh, let's take the example of many many people who are probably unknowledgeable about the uh, First Corinthians and Second Corinthians. Yeah, you got the guy there who's having uh, sex with his father's wife. Right. right. That's right. Okay, so take us take us through that. But I think it had a happy ending. Uh, it when did. You, when you yeah, so take us through that process there. You don't have to bring up all of the verses out of there, but you can tell us the sure. story generally. Absolutely. So, you know, Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth is this local church that has a very serious issue within the church, which is there is a member who is considered to be in good standing in that church. He uh, is under the care of the elders of the church, and yet he's having sexual intercourse with his father's wife. We don't get any more details than that. It's just his father's wife, and he's sleeping with her and not uh, even um, ashamed of it. It's a, it's a very public sin uh, that is unrepentant and very serious within the church. And in fact, the church itself is boasting uh, in this sin. So they're all sort of complicit in it, uh, which, which explains the Apostle Paul's you know, almost angry tone, or, or he seems somewhat exasperated with the church for not following Jesus's commands and, and calling one another to repentance and pursuing uh, church discipline, which they have failed to do. So, so the Apostle Paul calls on them to um, excommunicate this man. It's such a serious, public, unrepentant sin that it requires uh, putting this man out of the church. And the language that Paul uses is turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, but the salvation of his soul. So you see that there's this good purpose in it, the salvation of his soul, but it is um, very serious. Uh, there are uh, earthly, fleshly consequences, and it is turning someone over to Satan when they're put out from under the protection uh, and the uh, refuge uh, that you have uh, in the local church. Uh, that is to turn someone over to Satan. So that's that's the first letter he writes to the church in Corinth. Uh, by the time he writes uh, the second letter uh, to the church in Corinth, uh, there's a, a new situation. And that uh, seems to be that this man who was put out of the church has repented, and yet they the church has failed once again, but this time they failed on the other side. And uh, this is so much like the church, right? We tend to overcorrect. Uh, I think it was Luther who said the church is like a drunken peasant who gets up onto its donkey only to fall off on the other side. And we do that often, you know, with um, uh -huh. uh, licentiousness over to legalism and, and have a hard time just maintaining a, a gospel balance. Well, this church in Corinth was doing the same thing. They were being too harsh now to this man. He, he'd committed this terrible, serious, public, and unrepentant sin, but now he's repentant, and they should have restored him, but they, but they do not. They refuse to allow him back into the church, and Paul tells them that, uh, that, that, that it was enough. Uh, it, it led mm -hmm. to the goal, and that they must now receive him back with joy and celebrate uh, his repentance. And so that's second Corinthians. 
Yes, and so that's right out of the Word of God. Here's a an example given to us straight from the Scripture of the whole process. You got yeah, how, step one all yes. the way to step seven, restoration. That's right. And like you said, the church had failed in both all of it, but fortunately they had a living apostle yes. right there to set set them on on track to get this done right. That's right. Uh, so, uh, of course, not all not all. Uh, Excommunications have a happy ending, but uh, in this case, there was one. Yes, Uh, that's right. But we also get a tremendous example from 1 and 2 Corinthians that you just gave of the failure of the church to get it right. Yeah. And that's what I think I saw some stats that over 90% of churches do not exercise exercise church discipline. Yeah. 90% of all these local churches, some of them are mega churches, but yeah. uh, a lot of smaller churches too. They just don't do it. They and, don't. Uh, and, and honestly, they're without excuse. I mean, the church in Corinth did have the apostle Paul there to goad them along and, and to write to them. Uh, but the yeah. church today has first uh, Corinthians, second Corinthians, all the other letters that Paul has written. And, yeah. and then the letters that Peter has written and the words of the Lord Jesus, they have more of a witness to the truth and a calling them to practice church discipline than even the church in Corinth did. So they're they're without excuse. Hey everybody, I'm Pastor Jeff Durbin with Apologia Church. I want to thank you all so much for watching the content right here on Apologia Studios channel. Uh, What you're about to watch is a sermon, a message from Apologia Church's worship service. And again, I want to thank you all so much for watching, for liking, for commenting, for sharing the sermon itself. We truly believe that it's important for the Christian church to have an engagement in the public square with the Word of God. So we thank you so much. So this is interesting. I remember a story of something that happened really only a couple of years ago. It was a woman who was a professing believer in a local Christian church. She was a member of that church, and she ended up in an adulterous relationship while in that body. The church tried to win her back. The church followed Matthew chapter 18. They went to her patiently. They went to her with wisdom. They went to her um, and took time and they, they actually were pleading with her to turn away from this lifestyle and to come to Christ and to be healed. They were trying to win her back. They were not heavy-handed. They were gracious, and they were patient with her. And when she would not turn and uh, heed the counsel of her local body, many believers within that body, when she wouldn't turn, the church decided it was now time to obey Jesus and to bring her before the church and to put her out of the church to exercise church discipline as commanded here in Matthew chapter 18. Well, so upset was this woman, this adulterous woman, with what the church was going to do by bringing it before the entire church to expose it and to actually tell her she could no longer fellowship in the church until she repented. She was so upset that the word was going to get out about what she did that she went to the media to tell them how upset she was about the church exposing her before the church. Think about that one. So now instead of just being exposed in her local Christian body, she went to the national media to complain that this church was going to out her in public. And she told the media that, so now more people knew about it. But that goes to tell you sort of the the problem that we have today in uh, Christian culture in the West. Another example, how many of you guys saw recently that uh, church, where was it, babe? Was Was it Kentucky? Was it Tennessee? It was, was it Kentucky? Yeah, it was a church in Kentucky that um, recently sent out letters to, I think, 60, maybe more 
uh, members who hadn't shown up to church uh, for over a year. They hadn't shown up for church. They're members of the church. Hadn't shown up uh, for worship services. They weren't participating in the body. And the church finally actually sent letters to everyone saying how much they cared about them and they loved him, but they were officially removing them from the membership role because they had been, not been there for over a year. They weren't worshiping. They weren't on the Lord's Day receiving sacrament. They weren't participating at all. And so the church said, well, we love you and you're welcome back at any time, but we're going to remove your name from membership. And the fallout from that was fantastic. It was amazing. How dare you, as a local church, tell somebody that they're no longer in your membership role because they haven't shown up for a year. I mean, come on. I mean, shouldn't you just be gracious? Shouldn't you just leave it open to whoever, to whatever they want to do? We live in that kind of era right now where we don't quite understand the meaning and the purpose of the church. I'm going to talk about that just at the beginning of this, I, I want to let the text, text speak for itself, but I want to lay down some foundations. If you look in your Bibles, I want you to see Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Go to the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Hebrews 12, 14. I know that um, I'm always encouraged by my family to give you more time to get there, so I want to do that right now. Uh, if you haven't read the book of Hebrews, I encourage you to, to do so as soon as possible. Very, very important work. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, it says something powerful here to the church. I want you to see it for yourself. In terms of what the Bible says about our sanctification, our life of holiness as those who have turned to Christ in faith and are being transformed by God. It says this, Strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's compelling really to see where we are now on a popular level with the gospel. We understand the gospel in this way, I think, primarily today in the West. We understand the gospel to mean that there's someone named Jesus who claimed to be God. He lived, of course, a perfect life. He was righteous and blameless. He died for sins and he rose from the dead. He was a sweet man. He never really judged or condemned anybody. He was all about love and he never really would have said anything harsh or difficult. And this is the message of the gospel. If you want to go to a place called heaven one day and not a place called hell, then this is, this is what you do you just say this prayer. Read the prayer in the back of this book or on this paper. Read this prayer. And if you have said that prayer at some time in your life, that means that your ticket has been punched for heaven one day. You will go to heaven one day and not to hell. Why? Because you've prayed that prayer. You read that tract. You prayed that prayer. You, you, had an, you acquiesced to the facts of Jesus. That's all that's necessary. You acquiesce and you say, all that's true. And because of that acquiescence, because you've said that, that means now you are going to heaven one day and not to hell. That's on a popular level what we understand the gospel to be. Of course, that's not how you will find the gospel enunciated or proclaimed in the New Testament record. You will never find the apostles proclaiming the gospel in the sort of way I just described to you. You actually have the gospel being talked about as the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. You hear the good news being proclaimed as repent 
and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin to the living God. Be reconciled to God. Jesus talks to massive crowds of people. He turns and says to them things that talk them out of coming to him and following him. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, and he names the most popular people in your life, the closest people to you. And he says, in even your own life, you're not worthy to be my disciple. He says, count the cost to come to me. He says, you must come to take up your cross and follow me, which in that day meant come and do the death march. You are letting go of your life. You are denying yourself. You are coming to Jesus in faith in him to receive the gift of eternal life and righteousness. And here's what's distinct, very important. It wasn't a message proclaimed like, someday do you want to go to heaven, pray this prayer. The message was, do you want heaven now? And by heaven I mean God, Christ, him, his righteousness, forgiveness, eternal life, salvation, the spirit of God. Do you want to be born again? Do you want to be made alive? And the gospel was proclaimed, turn from sin, be reconciled to God, be saved today. Today is the day of salvation. Salvation, the gospel, was about peace with God today. It was about eternal life, righteousness of God, credited to me through faith in Jesus, through his work alone, not my righteousness, all those are filthy rags, not my works of obedience, not in the past, not present, not ever. It was about Jesus' work in righteousness, and you receive him through faith. But the call of the gospel, make no mistake about it, was to deny yourself, to come and die, to put your faith in Christ, to be made new, to be made alive. Paul describes it in Romans chapter 6. He says this, what shall we say then? After he just explains the gospel as a gospel of grace and faith apart from any works, all through Christ's work alone, him being the propitiation, the diversion of wrath in our place, the full absorption of wrath, Jesus displayed publicly so that God may remain just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. And it's all by God's grace. It's all faith. It's all a promise through Abraham and his descendants. And it's all God crediting me righteousness apart from works of law and not counting my sins against me. And it's all Jesus, no works, circumcision, works of law, nothing. It's Jesus alone. And Romans 6 comes, Paul anticipates. He anticipates the objection of the cults when they hear about the grace of God and faith alone in Jesus, no works of law, all Jesus, all to his glory, all to his name, they say, so what, you can just continue in sin because you believe in Jesus, because you say you trust in Jesus, now you can do whatever you want? Paul anticipates the imaginary objector, and he says this, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? He says what? God forbid, may it never be. He says, how shall we who died to sin continue to live in it? And he says, I want you to count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That's how the gospel interacts with the believer when they turn to Christ in faith. And make no mistake about it, this needs to be said. Hebrews 12, 14 says what it says. It says very clearly, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Make it very, very clear. 
with the Scriptures. The Bible teaches that if somebody has been born again, born from above, if they've been indwelled by the Spirit of God, if they've been made alive and renewed in Jesus, if God indwells that person, then that means, listen closely, here's the hope, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It means that you've been made alive. You're no longer the same thing. If any man is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old things have passed away. New things have come. And the call to the church is strive for peace with everybody and for the holiness without which nobody will see God. Nobody knows God who is not striving for holiness. Let me say it again. If you are not striving, if you are not, I'm not saying perfection, I'm not saying falling into sin, I'm saying if you are not the kind of person who's living in constant repentance and pursual of the glory of God and His name being magnified, if you're not pursuing holiness and righteousness, then here's, here's what needs to be said. I want to say it with love and compassion because I'm a wretch. I'm a wretch. I am no good in myself. I am not righteous. I want to say it. If you are not pursuing holiness, you are not a believer. You are not a Christian. Just because a person has affections for the Word of God and Christian culture and what it means to be in the church, just because you like to listen to sermons, just because you appreciate Bible studies, just because you like Christian fellowship, it does not mean that you know God because you're comfortable with the Christian culture. The Bible teaches that if a person is in Christ, they are new, they are seated with Christ at the right hand of God, they are raised up with Him, their life is hidden with God in Christ, and they have now a new nature born from above, and now their heart has gone, Ezekiel 36, from a heart of stone to a heart of what, everybody? Flesh. A heart that was once hard towards God is now malleable, it's soft, it actually is workable in God's hands. And I want to say, if that hasn't happened to us fundamentally, change from the bottom up. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about you're now no longer struggling with sin. If it hasn't happened, though, to where there is now a struggle with sin, I have no basis to say that I know God. Hebrews says, strive for holiness without which no one will see God. Those who know Christ who have been truly redeemed through faith alone, by grace alone, are people that pursue holiness. That's foundational. Okay, now go back to Matthew chapter 18. With all that said in terms of foundations, what does the Bible say? I want to remind you as you enter this text of some things that we've already read in, in Matthew. I just want to point you back to it because it's really important. And I love this text, not just because it gives us a strong position to, as a church, grow together and to love one another and to properly actually be sanctified together as a body. But I love this because there's something that happens in this text that's compelling in terms of Jesus' relationship to the law of God. Very important text here. You'll remember that we actually spent a lot of time in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. I want you to keep a finger here, and I want you to see how Jesus relates to the law of God, which shows that he is the suffering servant. He is the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one, the deliverer, because how he uses the law of God 
You need to see it. So keep your finger here and go to Matthew chapter 5. Just briefly, I want you to see it. Matthew 5, 17. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, watch this, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's the kingdom of God. That's Christ's rule. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They had a righteousness that was a self-centered righteousness. It was a man-centered righteousness. It wasn't God's righteousness. You need Christ's righteousness or you don't enter the rule of God. But note what Jesus says here. The words in the Greek, if you want to write it down, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The wording there in the beginning is this. May namasete. And in the Greek language, may namasete actually is a way to express in the strongest possible terms. Listen, watch. It's not this. Stop thinking. Hey, guys, stop thinking that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. He actually says this. May namasete means this. Don't even begin. Don't let it enter into your mind. Don't let the seed start to grow in your mind that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Don't even begin to think. Don't even start. Don't even think about this in your mind. I have not come to do that. Now you see Jesus in Matthew 15, 10 chapters away, in a conflict with the Jews of his day who had erected a tradition alongside Scripture, and they said, watch this, watch. They said this, Scripture is God's Word. It's His divine Word and rule and law. We, we observe Torah. We observe the Tanakh. We have all of that. We respect it. But we have this divine tradition here that you must follow. God gave that too. we got to follow that. Now, in Matthew 15, go there. Matthew 15, chapter 1 you see Jesus appealing to God's law over against their tradition. Notice, Jesus says, don't think I've come to destroy the law of the prophets. I haven't come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. And in Matthew 15, Jesus now confronts them when they say this. The Pharisees' scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not eat, they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Follow me on this. Follow me. Jesus says, don't even begin to think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And then there's an instance where Jesus actually has the law of God lined up against their tradition, and he says, woe to your tradition. Woe to your tradition. You've called this divinely 
inspired tradition essentially. He says, you voided the word of God because the law of God says this, but you say this and you voided God's law. Woe to you. There's Jesus upholding the law of God. And now Matthew chapter 18 before you again. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that, here it is, every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Here's Jesus now taking the law of God. It's actually a law of justice. This is in the law of God in terms of how are you to receive accusations against anybody. In the court of law, how do you actually charge somebody as guilty? And the law of God condemns, outright condemns. The practice of indicting somebody or condemning somebody on the basis of one witness. There needed to be two or three independent lines of witness and testimony. And so what God does here, Jesus does here, is he actually goes back to the Old Testament law of God, not to the Ten Commandments. He goes to actually God's judicial law. You have moral law in God's law. You have ceremonial law. You have civil law in God's law. And in this case, Jesus appeals to a standard in God's civil code, which is not to receive an accusation unless it's on the basis of two to three witnesses, two to three independent lines of witness. Notice what Jesus does here. Very important. Follow me on this. This is critical today when so many try to deny that the Word of God, the law of God, has abiding relevance today. Jesus does not say, oh, well, guys, you know that we're in the New Covenant. New Covenant's coming. You know that things are going to change. And uh, I just want you to pull this one law over. Make sure that you have two or three witnesses. He just assumes the continuity of God's standards of justice into the new covenant. He just assumes the continuity. Now get me on this. This is really important. Are there things in God's law in the Old Testament that we are not to observe today? Yes. If you are erecting the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament law, you are in big H heresy. Big H. If you are erecting symbols and pictures and anything in the Old Testament that was pointing to Jesus that was meant to fade away, dietary restriction, dress code, all those things, if you are erecting that, that is dangerous. However, the law of God is assumed throughout the new covenant. And in this instance, Jesus tells us through the life of the church, how are you supposed to actually um, employ this issue of sanctification and working together to grow and to heal and church discipline, what does he do? He assumes God's judicial standards of this. You don't accept a charge against anybody unless it's on the basis of two to three witnesses. Watch what's powerful. When Jesus says where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with you. Check it out. That's Jesus as the covenant Lord over his body promising that when you go through this very difficult task of sanctification and church discipline, he says this, I'll be there with you. I'll be there with you. That's specifically about the issue of church discipline. As hard as it is, as soul-wrenching as it is, as heart 
breaking as it is, Jesus says, I will be there in your midst. That's why when we've had church discipline and apology at church, I'm telling you, there is something that happens in those moments that you cannot describe with words. There is a fear that comes over me, has come over your pastors, as we have done church discipline and apology at church over the years, that I honestly, I can't describe the feeling. Because there is a promise of a special covenant presence of the Lord Jesus in those moments of church discipline. Jesus says, I am there with you in your midst when you do this. I'm going to just tell you an encouraging story about it. So when Pastor Luke and I planted Apologia Church about a decade ago, um, we had this amazing church that was, uh, we never planned it. We didn't know this was going to happen. We had a whole different thing in our mind about where we were going, and then God just called together this church and this ministry, and we're like, okay, God, we'll be faithful to it, and we will serve you with this, and we'll give our whole lives to it, and we're in. And so we were in. And we had these amazing moments where it was just awe-inspiring. I mean, you saw people that were new believers in Jesus, covered in tattoos and gauges on their faces. They used to have like, um, like two weeks before they were out shooting heroin and out like having sex at raves and clubs and it, their lives were a mess. And then two weeks they're in Christ and now they're at these weird all-night prayer things that these people used to call uh, together. It was crazy. You got people all tatted up and in love with Jesus, torn pants on their knees and faces before God, all Friday night, not going out getting high, not going out and partying. Now, for them, the most amazing thing to do on a Friday night was to stay up all night and worship God and fellowship. And I, I'd get up in the morning and I'd, I'd, I'd turn my social media on and I'd see pictures of the sun just coming up and all these brand new baby believers like with their arms around each other or on their faces or reading their Bibles. That's what they were doing all Friday night. I mean, glorious. We, we would have no air conditioning in this family building. You have people on their knees on their knees worshiping God to a projection screen because we had no band. And they're just in love with Jesus and lives being transformed. You just see it happening over and over and over. And it was moments of just awesome. It just blew us away. And yet, these were new believers, almost all of them, new to Jesus, new to the church. And there were people that went back to their lives of sin and rebellion. There were people who were married and left their wives to go live in a sexual relationship with another woman. These things started happening as the church started to grow. And Pastor Luke and I had to make decisions early on. Are we going to be faithful to God and His command to us as shepherds? To live in accordance with Jesus commands us in Matthew 18. So in the first three years of church, I think we had somewhere around eight instances of church discipline. Each one of them, so painful. Each one of them, we went through with patience. We went through with wisdom. We went through trying to put away our emotions. We went through with faithfulness to God, trying to call that person back to Jesus. Do you know what, what we actually did? Was when we knew we had an issue of church discipline, say on one example, we had a man who had left his wife, who was now living in an adulterous relationship, 
with another woman. We offered to actually get him out of the apartment that he was in because he was making excuses saying now he had no choice because he's now living with this woman. We said, we'll pay. We had no money. We said, we'll pay. We will pull together money to get you out of that apartment in your own place. Please repent. Please turn away from this relationship. And he refused. We were in tears pleading with this man. Please turn away from this relationship. Come back to Christ. Come back to the body. We will love you. We will serve you. Please turn away from this. God calls this sin. It's going to destroy you. And he refused. Up until four o'clock, we've always had evening services. Up until four o'clock, before we started service, I was calling him, pleading with him on the phone. Please don't make us do this. Please come back to Christ. Please turn away from this. We will be here for you. And he refused. It was always so heartbreaking. One night, baby church, there's probably somewhere between 30 or 50 people at Apologia Church at this point. All of them come out of addiction to drugs and alcohol. And one night, after fighting for people's souls for weeks, Pastor Luke and I had to bring three, three people up for church discipline. And I got to tell you what our experience was before we did that. We had fought for their souls for weeks, begged them, pleaded with them, called them to Christ. And Pastor Luke and I had this conversation before church service that day. We thought that was it. We thought Apology at Church was over. It would not survive this. We're going to bring three people before this small, baby, growing church and do church discipline on three separate people who were like pillars in the church. And we made a decision before church that day, if God only had us plant this church for what we had done thus far, then that's what God did. And that's what we were called to do. But we must be faithful to God now in being faithful to what He calls us to in Matthew 18. And so we went before this small church And we came before the church crying, telling them about the first person. They didn't know it was coming, and so the whole church is in tears. Everybody's crying. I'm crying. We're broken, pleading for this person's soul. And then as soon as this was over, I said, now everybody, I have to tell you about something else. And then I brought the next one. The church is just crying and broken because now we've taken in the second person. And as soon as that was over, I said, and now I have to tell you another one. And the church, by the end of this, we thought there was no way we're going to recover from this. No way we're going to recover from this pain. And I got to tell you, brothers and sisters, the next week, our church was deeper in love with Jesus than we had ever been before and more closely connected and more pursuing holiness than we had ever before. People had an understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus and to be sanctified and to be here for one another. It transformed us as a church. And I have good news. I have good news. Because of the discipline that God brought through Apology at Church, people's lives were literally saved. And those people, many of them, came back and stood before this body and praised God for pastors and a church that loved them enough to say something and to try to reach them and win them. There are people at Apology of Church today that will tell you that it's because of God's discipline in His church that they are here in Christ today. They were one 
back because of the process of church discipline. It's a powerful thing. But it's also a thing we have to enter into with fear and with trembling because God commands us to do it with the aim to win that person. So can I ask you this? As you think about church discipline, last questions. As you think about church discipline, are you, are you challenging yourself or allowing yourself to be challenged right now in terms of how you view your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you feel challenged about the idea that you should let love cover a multitude of sins? Do you need to repent of being nitpicky with brothers and sisters in Christ and condemning them for things maybe you ought not to condemn them for. You just need to let love cover it. Are you convicted at all today? Did it stick? That there are times when you've seen a brother or sister doing something, maybe you thought it was happening, and you talked about it with somebody else before you talked to them. Has that ever happened to you? Let, us, let, let, let this change us as a church. So we become the kind of church that says we take this seriously and we love one another with depth, a divine love that seeks to restore and not to hurt. But there's another aspect of this. Here's the final one. This is the final one, and I want to challenge myself on this as well. Have we lived as a church in a state of mind where we haven't taken holiness and sanctification seriously, where we have people in our midst who are living in flagrant, biblically defined, unrepentant sin, and we have been so timid, so cautious that we're afraid to confront sin even when it's in our midst. Would the Apostle Paul say to Apologia Church, why are you boasting in your grace? You ought to be mourning. Do we live the kind of lives where we love God and love people enough to actually say the truth? And do we do it with motivations that are pure that aim to glorify God? That's my hope. Brothers and sisters, we are a church that I would consider as a sanctified, sanctifying, growing church. We are a church that's committed to biblical church discipline. And I pray with all my heart for the future, if there's ever an instance where God calls us to exercise church discipline, that we would experience the power and the sweetness of His covenant presence when we gather together to do it. And I pray that all of us would be transformed by these truths in Scripture, that this is how you're supposed to manage it, this is the motivation you're supposed to have, and this is the end goal of church discipline. Okay, we're back. And uh, all your stuff's just been excellent, brother. You're, you're doing a great job on this, this subject. Uh, Thank you, Larry. Now, what I'd like to, I'd like to hear from you, uh, your personal opinion and your biblical knowledge here 90% of so-called Christian churches are not doing any kind of church discipline. So what is your admonition to all these pastors and elders and preachers that hold up the word of God and they're preaching it every week? They they have a church, they do all this stuff. Yeah. Yet they're ignoring all this about right. church discipline. What what do you have to tell these guys? About well, they that? need to repent. And I think part of that repentance is recovering the the biblical mandate to practice church discipline. And so I would encourage them to go back through all of the passages that we just listed uh, to read uh, the commands uh, that they have uh, to do this and to 
uh, inflame the love that they have for the sheep, for God's people. Uh, because if you're not practicing church discipline, you're not loving your people enough. Uh, they need to love their people enough to be willing to go after them and to pursue them by the ordained means that God has given in church discipline to bring the uh, unrepentant back to repentance and back to reconciliation and fellowship with him. That's right. So I would just tell for myself, all these pastors and preachers, it's sort of hypocritical. I'm not telling you this, Pastor, because yeah, you, you're not making their mistake like all these another 90% of these preachers are. But uh, I tell those guys that, uh, look, I mean, it's hypocritical for you to get up in the pulpit and then you're ignoring all this stuff that Jesus told you to do while right. you're telling other people to repent. Yeah. You're not repenting yourself. Yeah. I mean, how hypocritical is that? You know, Absolutely. So you should, if you've got the Holy Spirit, you should be convicted. I know in my case, I'm convicted. Yeah. Even on the, as uh, one of my favorite preachers said, R.C. Sproul. See how I say his last name right? Sproul. Yes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's an inside joke between me. And uh, but anyway, <laughs> he 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 always would joke about these preachers that, uh, oh, I don't worry about that. That's just a picadillo. He'd always call a, a minor yeah. sin a picadillo, you know. Right. But, but see, even a minor sin in my case, from personal experience, I guess saved in 81. So at the time we're recording this. I've been a a born-again Christian for uh, 41 years. That's a long time to be a Christian. And I still have that conviction by by the Spirit uh, in Romans chapter 8 that it talks about we're convinced of our sin and and all those things that the the, the Spirit does within our lives. Even the picadillos, you know, they, they, I don't, I'm uncomfortable. And I know I have a lot of opportunities uh, to sin and do things, but I'm always like we talked about already in this video, uh, the consequences. You yeah. you take the Lord's Supper unworthily or yeah. you're doing things and God can kill you for yeah. certain unrepentant sins and, and things like that. And I have a healthy fear of God. Right. That, and that doesn't mean I'm just all scared of because I look at him as a loving father and he's merciful and yeah. saved me by his grace and his shed blood. Uh, but uh I still know that there's consequences to sin and uh, that keeps me in line because I have that healthy respect for God, a love for God. Cause I want to, you know, I try to be an obedient kid if I, you know, as much as I possibly can. Right. And even the picadillos are, are bothering me. I mean, this, this isn't just a little picadillo sin. When you're a pastor, an elder of a church and you're responsible for church discipline and yeah. you're ignoring that. That's no picadillo. Yeah. That's a yeah, major. It's very, it's very serious. And it has, it has really, really bad consequences because if you're not loving, you know, you're a shepherd if you're a pastor. Yeah. And I mean, that puts not, you under greater responsibility to God, right? Greater responsibility to God. One of the roles of a shepherd is to tend to his flock and to go after wandering sheep. And, yes. and bring them back to the fold. And that's what church discipline is. If you fail to do that, you're really giving the message that um, it's no big deal to sin against the Lord and to be unrepentant about that sin, uh, which is destructive. And I would argue that the consequences of practicing church discipline 
are uh, sweet, sweet fruit. Uh, first of all, there's the yeah. uh, objective of reconciliation for that repenting believer who responds to church discipline. But even if they don't respond, there is a remarkably good effect that it has and a sobering effect that it has mm -hmm. on the whole local church as they mm -hmm. all participate in this. It's an opportunity to check our own hearts and to remind ourselves of how seriously God takes uh, sin and calls us to repentance and faith in an ongoing way in the Christian life. And so it sanctifies the whole church to go through this discipline process. And if you're not uh, regularly uh, you know, pursuing discipline in your local church, then you're going to have a, a much un, uh, an unhealthy church body that views uh, sin lightly and really views God lightly. Exactly. And disrespect towards God and his ways. Yes. And it's given a place to the devil yeah. to operate. That's it's right. just like infecting your body, which is the church of Christ, with a, a deadly virus. Right. <laughs> that, uh, yeah. That That's can right. spread over time, right? Because yeah. the pastor is not taking care of his sheep. Exactly. Uh, and, and minimizing it as if the virus wasn't serious when... Um, sin is very serious and we ought not exactly. to minimize sin. Exactly. Very well said. Well, brother, I think we covered this pretty comprehensively. Yes. Excellent job as usual. Uh, we're going to sign this show off now. Uh, if you had any final words to say about it, I think you did a pretty good job of summarizing a moment ago, but if there's anything else you'd like to say before we sign off on this show. Um, I would just say that there are many good and helpful resources on the internet. If someone has uh, listened to this video and feels convicted uh, that they need to, as a church, begin to uh, practice church discipline. Uh, many, many places uh, that you can find good, uh, reformed uh, uh, information about how to uh, begin restoring church discipline into your local church. I think uh, Nine Marks, uh, Mark Devers' uh, little ministry up in Washington, D.C., is probably a good place to start. Excellent. And also, I would uh, recommend to our viewers to contact uh, Pastor Greg here. What's your uh, what's the church website? For, uh, yeah, you can Daspring find us. At, uh, it's pretty easy. DSF.org. Uh, Dayspring yes. Fellowship. So DSF.org. Uh, there's a link uh, to contact us. You can find out all about our church history, what we believe. And there are many uh, resources articles, videos that you can find on our website. And uh, you're also on Sermon Audio as well. Yes, yeah, so, uh, so all of we'll the uh, Sunday school teachings and sermons that have been preached for decades, going back to the founding pastor, Jackson Boyette, are online for uh, listening or viewing. Excellent, excellent. All right, brother, we're going to sign off. I'm going to uh, Go ahead and tell the viewers at home uh, my final little thing. And I want to thank you again, Pastor, for being with me. I'm you looking bet. forward to another show we're going to do on church splits. So if yes. anyone's watching this, we'll be doing a show on uh, church splits. So be looking for that on our YouTube channel at some point down the line. All right, I'm just talking to the viewers here, and we'll go from there. Well, this is the end of our program. I want to thank Pastor uh, Greg Van Court for being with me on this uh, great exposition, biblical exposition of church discipline and why preachers should be practicing it in their churches. And 90% of them aren't. So it's just terrible, a terrible travesty of this happening. But we felt like somebody ought to do something about it. And so we decided to do it. But uh, anyway, 
Uh, I'm Larry Wessels, your host uh, for Christian Answers. I want to thank you for being with us. Remember this, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus talked about himself. It's the biblical Jesus, not some phony Jesus of all the false religions that are out there, but the Jesus of the Bible, and it's the Bible you should believe. Well, with that, thank you for joining us. Join us again next time. God bless you all. Bye-bye. If you like our YouTube channel, please subscribe by clicking on the subscribe button and then by also clicking the bell above to get an automatic update whenever we produce another YouTube video for our See Answers TV channel. Please share our videos with your friends and relatives. May God bless you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. See related videos by tapping or clicking screens.